Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venue Land, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them. And our guest today joining us from the West Coast, Vanessa Cromer, Vice President of Communications for Nederlander Concerts. Vanessa, welcome to the broadcast. Well, thank you. I am a longtime listener, first-time caller. <laughs> Very excited to join. Vanessa, let's jump right into where things are at today. A hard-hitting question for you that I know is on the minds of a lot of people. What's it like to actually be working on concerts? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a weird time, isn't it? It feels we are bringing a little bit of normalcy to fans and to artists, which has been pretty incredible. So for those that don't know, Nederlander Concerts is based on the West Coast and we promote all over the country. But obviously with the pandemic, we've been shut down and the only venue that we've been able to promote in is our venue in Orange County. The rules in Orange County are much different than in LA. Okay. So people can be outside of their car in a 150 square foot spot. So the artist can connect with the fans and the fans can connect with the artists more than just being stuck in their cars listening to the radio. So we've been doing Drive in OC and we launched it in July. We had three sold out Andrew McMahon shows and we just had six Cascade shows, which Cascade had never played that venue. What is Cascade? Cascade's a DJ. Okay. He's a world renowned DJ. I'm old, right? So I don't know. Get on that level, Dave. No, no, it's all right. Trust me, I've learned about new artists because these artists wouldn't normally play a venue this size because normally the venue is only 1700 seat theater in Anaheim. The driving concerts are attracting bigger names and a lot of bigger artists. So that's pretty exciting. So there is a moment where you're like, this is really cool. And then there's a moment where you're like, you have a small limited staff. We had really bad fires in Orange County. So the air was super thick and hazardous and there was ash falling. And I was trying to set up inflatables to decorate the venue for Halloween. <laughs> and I was literally untangling this ghost on top of the roof right before doors with ash all over me. And I was just like, what is my life? This yeah. is not what I want to be doing now. <laughs> I've had a lot of what is my life moments in 2020. Yeah. What's the audience like as people are coming back? Are they receptive? Are you marketing shows differently? What are your challenges? Yes, definitely. We're really lucky. If we have the artist buy-in, if the artist is really active on social, then the shows do very well. Oh, okay. So it's all driven by social. We've gotten a lot of press, which has helped a lot for me just because I think it was all about the timing, but we've definitely been engaging with artist socials, artists being available for press, being so willing to do these shows. They're just so excited to play. We've been selling out a lot of shows, 50 shows between July and December. Wow. Wow. It's actually making a little bit of money. Granted, it's basically keeping some staff employed. Are you doing traditional media buys? Do you have a marketing budget or are you just sticking to more unpaid media like social, like you said? We do have a small marketing budget, and so we're kind of using it to support the socials, not doing any traditional ad buys or radio buys. For a few of our shows, we have a radio sponsor, so they're really pumping it out on radio. 
But for the most part, it's been all social and press. When you're seeing the audiences, obviously for a cascade, it's a younger audience, but was there a demographic you're seeing that's most excited to come back for live events right now? I would definitely say the younger audience. They're buying tickets right away. They're so excited. They are possibly not as worried about the pandemic. And so they're more willing to go out and see a live show. So the artists that we've been promoting, we've been doing a lot of electronic music, which has been doing very, very well. And then we've had Ziggy Marley. We've had some Latin shows. So we've had a lot of different genres of music, but we are seeing it to be a pretty young crowd. With that young crowd, and we, especially those of us who maybe have uh, big university towns or those kind of things, we know that getting that younger audience sometimes to listen to the rules, to wear the masks when you're supposed to wear the masks, even if it's just when you're going to the bathroom. How much work are you putting in on the front end to educate the audience on how to behave once they get there? And then what are the challenges once you're on site? Are you feeling like you got to play bad cop? That's a great question. So when we first launched, we only launched with 236 cars. And basically the tickets are sold per car and then you could put as many people in that car with a safety belt. We are now revising that to five people per car and we've increased the number to 287 vehicles that can be in the lot. We have communication since the moment they buy the ticket, whether it be from all of our social posts, our know before you go email blast, which maybe we'll send out a couple different ways in advance of the show, COVID consent language when they actually purchase the ticket, and then their signage as soon as they enter the venue. There's the video screens next to the stage that has communication. We're just now adding a voiceover track that will communicate the information. When they enter the parking lot, they get a QR code flyer, and that QR code links to a app that has everything on it to purchase food, beverage, merchandise. There's the FAQ. All the rules and regulations are on that app. And then security plays a huge major role. But we keep changing it each show to make it better, to make it safer. I personally, telling people to wear a mask when they use the bathroom, making sure people aren't going into other people's stalls, breaking up groups of people in stalls. It's all hands on deck because it's a smaller staff and because we're dealing with COVID. We need to be very protective of our brand and of our event. Yeah. Didn't you say that one of the earlier artists, you were running merch and posters out to people? (laughs) I mean, it is just everybody's doing everything. And it's such a team effort with the staff that's working. And it's physically exhausting because the other thing that's different is you're working, first of all, outside in a blacktop. And a lot of Nederlander venues are amphitheaters. But of course, when we launched, it was about 95 degrees in July on the blacktop and getting used to wearing a mask that whole entire time. I mean, we're averaging like eight miles a day walking that length of a parking lot versus a amphitheater. Because Nederlander really specializes in small to mid-sized amphitheaters. So we're looking at 3,000, maybe 6,500 seat amphitheaters. Imagine working an entire parking lot for 10 hours a day in the sun with a mask on. So physically it's exhausting. Yeah. That's a different experience. And like one of the early shows, we didn't have enough staff. And so the general manager and myself and everybody, we were literally taking food and beverage to the stalls. And it's also a big education because people are trying to figure out, well, what's my stall number and how do I do this? So it's very direct contact with the consumers. If you could go back to, you know, those first few shows and give yourself some advice of, hey, here are some things I've learned, other than obviously being well-staffed. 
and being willing to do anything. What do you think you've learned over that process that you would let the Vanessa of July know? Never wear a wedged heel tennis shoe. (laughs) (laughs) I'll remember that. Write that one down, Paul. All right. Gosh. I got to take mine off and wear it right now. (laughs) Wear a flat tennis shoe. Also, what we've learned We have our first few rows, our VIP, and then the back rows are general admission. And at first, the VIP would come in in the general admission. We now wristband those VIP rows so we can identify. Because what was happening is that some people in the GA were friends with people in the VIP, so they would come from the back to be in the front. Now we have identification. We can actually track who the VIP is, who the GA is. We have more security staff throughout the actual rows. It's good to know some things like that haven't changed. Yeah. That happens on just the normal show where people are trying to sneak them into the GA and the VIP. They're going to do it no matter what. Yeah. We were taking all the photographers up to the rooftop to get photos and climbing up these ladders to get to the rooftop. And now we're like, oh, wait, we have a scissor lift. We can put the scissor lift in the back of the drive-in and do photos from back there. Yeah. Just like little things that we've learned along the way. I mean, I'm sure there's so many more things just like with ingress and egress. And you'd be shocked. Egress, we can clear out our lot within 20 minutes. We only have two exits. It clears out super fast. The other thing you have to think about is we have it streamed through a radio station too. So there have been some dead cars. So you have to have jumper cables. Yep, sure. Things like that. We've had to tell people whatever trash they have, they get a trash bag and they're supposed to take the trash and pack the trash with them and leave with it. Because you can't have anything that you're touching because of COVID. Right. You know, you're supposed to keep everything contained to your little pod. Yeah, sure. You hit on photographers, which I think is interesting because, of course, that's something that a lot of us in marketing and PR venues deal with. How has that been different for these shows? You know, I'm sure all of them are wearing masks, but are you finding it's easy to get approval from artists? Are they just, you know, happy to have some coverage? How has that changed Very happy. Yeah, absolutely. The artists love it. And we've limited it. So I kind of instituted the rules. It's maximum five photographers per show. For some of the other shows, we have had a lot more. So you have to stagger them out and space them out. Everybody wears a mask. I send them a confirmation sheet with COVID consent that they're entering this building and kind of what our rules are that they have to abide by. And we've been very selective with who we approve. But yeah, the artists have been great to work with. Yeah, I imagine because the fear is is that they're they're looking for the news story as much as covering the artist, right? So they're looking for those people that are not following the rules. And those are the six pictures that end up getting published, right? Mm -hmm. Are you kind of having that talk with them? Or is it the people that you trust that are getting approved? I'm lucky that we've had pretty much the same people coming. So I do trust those outlets that have been coming. There have been a couple of shows where we've had a lot of TV cameras and kind of having to manage that and escort them all around to get the right shots. It's hard right now with media because everybody has a camera and everybody's posting on social media and TikTok. So you can only control so much and we're doing the best we can with the resources we have. Have you had a story go in a way that you didn't like yet? Anytime there seems there's a big concert nationally, you see pictures of people that And sometimes not even a big crowd, it's just the way that photo is taken from the stage or they caught the few bad actors. Have you had a situation like that? Luckily, no. I hope I'm not jinxing myself. (laughs) Sorry to ask. (laughs) Knock on wood, yeah. (laughs) Now I'm nervous. No, luckily, no, we haven't. It's interesting, the artists, we had Eliza Schlesinger and we had Dawes and their tour managers. Person were going around and being like, put on your mask, put on your mask, because we have a little VIP area side stage. And when you're eating or drinking, you don't need to wear a mask. 
they were going up to people like, you need to put on your mask. So everybody's very aware. Awareness level is really heightened. Yeah, because it behooves the artists, right? I mean, they want to keep tour and they want to keep a good reputation. They want to keep this thing going. So as you're going through this, you mentioned release forms for media that are specific. Are you writing those yourself? Have you kind of been pulling it out of thin air of like, hey, we probably should say this and this and this, or do you have a legal team that's helping you out there? The information that we pulled was vetted. So we've been using that different iterations of it. It's not a waiver that they're signing, but we're sending them this consent that if they are coming, they're agreeing to this. So yes, it was vetted by our team. I don't know actually 100% where it was originated from, but I think it was pulled from different venues that were already doing drive-ins by the time we were doing drive-ins. And Ticketmaster and Access, they have this legal consent that's very similar to what we have. So when you purchase a ticket, it pops up. So it's very similar. You mentioned the VIP area, and I think you've done some trade shots, right? Like you've done some artist gifts. So what have you seen change there? Have any of them tried to attempt to do any sort of, I can't imagine they would do like a meet and greet, but is there any sort of extra add-ons? Yeah. And also, what does that look like? Are they being, I would imagine, a lot more cautious, but what does that look like? There's definitely not a lot of meet and greets. Elijah Schlesinger does have a meet and greet package. You drive up and you get a photo with her and it's very well managed. It's like you're in your car? You drive up, you get out of your car, you do the meet and greet, get back in your car and then leave. It's at the end of the night. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. You have like a car size step and repeat behind it and you drive <laughs> no, up and your Chevy and she walks up to it? No step and repeat. They had a light to brighten up the photo. Real quick meet and greet, photo, snap, chat, and leave. <laughs> as far as our trade shots, we have done trade shots. We're all wearing masks. Thank the artist. The trade shots are exactly how they've always been, except for you're just wearing a mask. Okay. So when I submit my trade shots, nobody knows who anybody is. Right, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm imagining the artist sitting on hoods of cars as you, so you just pull up, they kind of hop onto the hood of your car for a photo. <laughs> you, you don't even get to roll down your window, you know, yeah. but it's a... Uh... I don't know what it's going to turn into. That was the only mean greet that we've had so far. But hey, that's one more than most of us have had these days. Mm-hmm. Have you seen artists do anything out of the ordinary? I'm sure most of them stick to the stage because they're worried. But obviously, pre-COVID, you would see people running out in the crowd. You'd see crowd surfing. Is there a new form of that? Are artists kind of weaving in and out of the cars or are they all staying in their bubble on the stage? Totally staying in their bubble. The only rogue artist was we had a big group, Banda El Rocoto. One of the band members, there was a matinee and an evening show. To make any money, you know, the production costs are so expensive. So you have to kind of utilize the stage as much as possible. So we're doing multiple shows in a weekend. And a lot of times there's a matinee in an evening. And so we had two shows that day. And one of the band members came down into an impromptu press conference. Interesting. Yeah. So we were like, oh, okay. He was in the photo pit and the photographers and the camera crews came up. And so we made everybody wear a mask. We tried to separate everybody. And then we kind of ended it as soon as he got some of his answers out. But yeah, that was unexpected. So when you're doing this and you're on site and the artist is on stage, I know it's a different feel, but does it feel like a concert to you? Or does it feel like something that's totally new to this universe? It does feel like a concert. It does make you escape. And doesn't everybody want an escape right now? Amen. If you're outside of your car and you're listening to the music and you're a big fan of the artist or you, you're you hearing your favorite song, like we had Fits of the Tantrums and he had everybody just scream at the same time. Like all the frustration, all the anxiousness and everything that you're feeling, just scream and let it all out. And an entire crowd of people just started screaming. And you felt that sense of community. 
And then he plays hand clap and everybody's clapping and dancing in their stall. And yes, you definitely feel like you're at a concert. You forget you're wearing a mask. You forget that your legs hurt and you do have a moment. That's great. I look forward to having that feeling again. We obviously introduced you as VP of communications for Nederlander concerts. And we talked about things going on there kind of in your neighborhood sort of, but Nederlander is much more than just that little pocket of California, right? Correct. What are we looking at for 2020 and into 21? We took some of our drive-ins across the country. Andrew McMahon was so successful in Anaheim that we took him to New Jersey. We took him to Chicago, HEB centers, tailgate series. So now that we have this infrastructure and we kind of know how to mobilize this app and take it to different venues, we are making these little mini tours across the country. So we are continuing to book. Luckily, we're in California. And besides the fires, you know, there's not a lot of weather here. It's either fire season or summer. (laughs) We are going to be doing these indefinitely. We don't have an end date. We can do these in the winter because even though I'll be freezing, you know, most people can handle the 50 degree weather and there's not a lot of rain, sadly. These shows will be rain or shine, but we don't get the heavy rain that a lot of other states do. So we're going to be doing these indefinitely. And if there's an opportunity to take them to other markets, we'll be doing that too. For folks who don't know, let's step back just a tiny bit to the before times. In 2020, what and where is Nederlander Concerts? So Nederlander Concerts is based in LA. I think that's what you're asking. Yeah. The Nederlander is synonymous with Broadway. The Nederlander family are huge in the Broadway world. The day that everything shut down, we were supposed to open Hamilton at the Pantages Theater. That's where my office is. And they had to shut it down eight hours before curtain. Broadway is really where Nederlander began, the Nederlanders kind of started the amphitheater structure, I guess, back in the day. The company's been around 100 years, over 100 years. I had no idea. The concert division, yeah, they've, they're they based in LA, like I said, and we haven't been around as long, but for over 40 years, we managed the Greek theater in Los Angeles. And we also have uh, Vina Robles Amphitheater in Paso Robles, the San Jose Civic. We do concerts from Sacramento to San Diego and then across the country And we are a boutique independent promoter. But we do manage and operate some venues like City National Grove of Anaheim, where we're hosting these drive-ins. That's great. How big is Nederlander these days? What do you got resource-wise? We had to, unfortunately, furlough some staff. Would normally be, gosh, maybe 100, 150 people. And I think we're down to 25. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty small. Obviously, we're not doing the volume, but you'd be shocked because everything is super last minute. That's the other thing that's crazy right now is not only are we putting on new shows, we're still rescheduling shows because we had like 200 shows scheduled that we rescheduled to maybe the fall or winter of this year. And now we're rescheduling them again. Yeah, we're seeing that quite a bit. So we're still rescheduling stuff and dealing with ticketing and dealing with refunds. And then we have our production team. We just lost a lot of key players. And there's so much we're making up as we go along, right? And we're just trying to fight our way through this and figure it all out. I do want to come back to the Greek and we'll get back there in a few minutes. But to figure out how we got here, I want to step back a little bit in time. So uh, let's travel back to the mid to late 80s. A teenage Vanessa Cromer, I'm guessing. She's got leg warmers on. Uh, is that an Erasure concert? Is that, that was your first concert, Erasure? Do I remember that correctly? She's listening to Michael Jackson. <laughs> yes, that was a good find. I found those old ticket stubs from 1990. And that year, that was Millie Vanilli, Erasure, Billy Joel, 
And I think there was one more and I can't remember. I actually think though that my very first concert was in 87 and I think it was George Michael. George Michael. Okay, there you go. Nice. Yeah. So how did we get from the teenage girl attending that concert to somebody who said, this is what I want to do with my life? So basically when I was in high school and college, I always loved award shows. Obviously growing up in California, you see it a lot with LA and I would be the one that would get my friends and we would wait outside the Shrine Auditorium or possibly a seat to get (laughs) in to the red carpet to like see the fans. And you'd get there at like 5 a.m. and wait in line. And I think the only celebrity I saw get out of his car was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so I was always into the red carpets and the glitz and the glamour of award shows and things like that. And then- Not you, I can't see that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is not at all surprising. (laughs) (laughs) So I loved it. And then thinking back when I was in high school and when I was in college, I was kind of always the girl behind the scenes, whether I was a cheerleader, I know, shocking. So in cheer, I was the one selling ads and putting on the productions for our charity events and for the talent show. And then for sorority, I was the president of our sorority and I was the one putting on the fundraisers and the promoting of the fundraisers. So when you start to think about all those things, it's like, oh, I guess I was always doing PR and marketing just in a completely different way. Sure. And so I had retail experience in the Arrowhead Pond, now known as the Honda Center. A sorority sister of mine came by and passed out applications. They were looking for people to work the box office, to hire box office employees. And because I had that retail experience, I was hired. I didn't know at that time. I maybe had gone to like one Laker game, a couple Angels games, those few concerts. My dad was a produce manager of a grocery store. My mom was a babysitter, like very middle of the road, blue collar workers. So Entertainment was not in our life. So I started working in the box office, which thank God, because I feel like that's such a great training ground for anybody to begin in this industry. So I worked in the box office and was lucky enough to get an internship. And then when the Staples Center opened, that good colleague of mine, Christy Castillo-Butcher, she's still in the business. She's now at SoFi Stadium. I don't know her exact title, but she's done amazing with her career. She kind of just put my resume to the top. I interviewed along with everybody, but I got the job as the PR manager. So I was there for a couple of years. And at the time, Nederlander concerts, we ran all the concerts. Live Nation and AEG were different. They weren't as big as they are now, obviously. And Nederlander, we were the exclusive concert promoters for all these venues. And so I always knew the general manager for the Greek theater and at Nederlander concerts because he was always going to the box office at the Arrowhead Pond. So I was helping him with his tickets at the Arrowhead Pond. And then we would go to Staples Center and I would help him in PR and marketing. And so we were at Backstreet Boys in catering and he was like, hey, would you ever want to go to the concert side of things? We just lost our director of publicity. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. Because I wasn't ever that big into sports. Although you said you were not huge in the live entertainment, like with your family, you do have a passion for music, right? I mean, oh, yeah. anyone who's seen you at a conference has seen you cut a rug, to put it lightly. So as much as you may not have been into live entertainment, you have a passion for music. No question. I mean, I grew up always dancing in a musical theater. So Nederlander, obviously with that Broadway background was such a perfect fit. And I loved musical theater. Like I would try to go to every musical that I could. That was really what I loved. Seeing Cats when I was a sophomore in high school was like the thrill of my life. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Did you have that cat sweatshirt? I remember a lot of girls in the 80s wearing the cat sweatshirt to school. <laughs> the black sweatshirt with the eyes. I was yes, that's the one. <laughs> I was singing. I took singing lessons. I was in musical theater all through high school. The drama club, so into it. So into it. But I knew, and I thought in high school that I would become a broadcaster. But then when I got to college, I really started taking PR classes. And I was like, oh, this makes way more sense. You mentioned at one point, you know, your resume kind of getting put to the top of the pile. Yeah. So right now there's somebody out there listening to this podcast who is at the bottom of the feeding chain, right? In the venue world. When those positions open up, they want to get to the top pile. What do you think it was about you and the way that you work that kind of helped you get into that position? I think you really need to prove yourself. You need to work hard. You need to be a team player, need to jump in. I think this is a lifestyle for all of us. And a lot of it comes instinctively for us. And you see something and you jump in and you help. Going back to that drive-in, it's not like the general manager came to me and was like, hey, Vanessa, can you go deliver food and beverage to these cars? I saw him delivering food and beverage to the cars. And I was like, what's going on here? And he's like, we're short staff. We need help. I'm like, okay, let me help you. You just kind of have to be aware of what's going on and jump in and not be too big for anything. Yep. I think work ethic plays a big role in it. Agree. Yeah. You know, you work such long hours that you want to work with people you enjoy. There's so much, there's so much to be said for that, for sure. Yeah. And it pays off too, because then that F&B person or your general manager sees you doing that. And then if you need help with something, then they're going to come back to you and help out and pitch in with you. There's so many rewards that come from jumping in and being willing to be a team player. Absolutely. The word that I hate the most is no, because I'm always like, oh, there's always a workaround. We can figure this out. Don't tell me no. And if you tell me no, then that makes me go harder to turn it into a yes. Oh, no, we can do this. (laughs) So I just like the people that are around me that have a good attitude, team players and creative. And I think that definitely describes you, you know, 100 percent. It's those moments, kind of like you mentioned, you know, when you see your GM or something helping with food service. I remember early on one of my first days working in a venue, walking the concourse with a GM and he saw a napkin on the ground. Yeah. And he stopped and he picked it up and he put it in the trash. And from that moment on, anytime I was in the concourse and I saw just some, you know, a hot dog wrapper or something, you know, on the ground, no matter who I was with, I would stop and I'd pick it up and throw it out. And then when I was doing that with my staff, guess what they would do the next time they were walking through that hallway? Yeah. The good ones, at least. And it's funny, but The person who's willing to pick a napkin up off the ground is the person you will trust more for that upper management position when that time comes. Absolutely. And I think this industry, once you're in it, it's such a small industry. And I will always recommend help whoever I can. If they've worked hard for me and if I really think that they're a great person, I don't want them to leave me and I don't want to lose them working with me. But I'd rather that if I see a great opportunity, I'm going to push them towards that opportunity. And that was kind of my friend, Christy. I was super happy at the Arrowhead Pond. I loved it. But she was like, I think you have more in you and you should try this. She's always kind of pushing and challenging me. And I think you need those people on your team. For sure. Those people that make a big difference in your life and kind of set that path for you are so important. So walk me through from that window to becoming VP of communications for Nederlander. When I started at Nederlander, I laughed because I look back and I'm like, how did we do this? We were at everything. We were in Bakersfield and San Diego. We were all over the place, but we didn't have social media. It was such a different time. And we were younger. And so it was like, okay, yeah, this is fun. We're working all the time. Well, you get to a point after seven years at Nederlander, I love the company. I love the people, but I was just burnt out working every night and weekend. And it was just nonstop. And an opportunity came up to go to Rogers and Cowan, a big PR firm. And 
I had never worked at a PR agency. So I thought maybe this would be a good change and something different for me. I was in the consumer sports and entertainment division, which was a good fit, not probably the best because I had had so many years of music under my belt, but I was working on bigger brands. I was working with like General Mills and Diageo, which represented Captain Morgan and these big, huge budgets. I really, truly believe that that's how I feel like I got my master's working there. Very smart people. I'm good friends with a lot of those people still today. It just was different because it's so based on pitching business. It just wasn't the best fit for me. And I was offered a job and I had called back Nederlander to talk about the opportunity because I was like, hey, I've been out of the business for a little bit. What do you think? And they were like, well, are you looking? And I go, well, no, but I want to see about this position because they're kind of coming after me. And the next thing I know, they're like, well, you can come back here, come back to Nederlander. And so 11 years later, so basically almost 20 years now at Nederlander, I've been back and I just kind of made a concession. I was like, listen, I'll do it, but I can't work all those shows. I need to have more work-life balance. I need to have help. It's a hard ask to make, Yeah, but you have to know when the time is right to do it. Yeah, exactly. When I came back, I started as a director and asked formally to become a vice president. Pre-2020, how much travel were you doing for all these shows? So I would go to Paso Robles, which is about four hours north of LA. I would go up there, gosh, every other weekend. We were doing a lot of shows in Austin at one point, and I was going to Austin at least once a month, there for a while, probably more than that. And then San Jose and Sacramento. In the summer months, I was probably traveling once a week. That's still a pretty good amount. Yeah. More than a lot of us. And so many of us are tied to an individual market, and we know our markets, right? We know who to call. And we know where to go. And if we need to hook up with somebody at the comedy club to help promote a comedian, we know that person, we've got a personal relationship. But when you're doing multiple markets and you are out of your hometown, what are the marketing challenges like to, you know, all of a sudden be doing stuff in Austin, for example? Thank God for EAMC. Every market is pretty much represented through the conference. So I can go to that market and either somebody has left the building or still at the building and they put me in touch with the right people. They're so great. I mean, I work with Erin Miller at HEB and she'll give me her press contacts or loop me in and copy me in. And that's been super helpful. Yes, I have had to go into some markets and learn it, go and kind of introduce myself and start from the beginning and build those relationships. It's a lot of schmoozing. And there are more markets that are more media friendly than others, as everyone knows. Sure. But thank God for AMC. That's truly been the only way to get in touch with these people. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, when we talk about the Event Arena Marketing Conference, there are some folks listening today who have never been. I know you've been more than a few of these over the years. So how did you first get involved with the conference? First conference was in Phoenix, and I was immediately hooked because, first of all, it's everybody that does what we do. And there was this lazy river, and we just cruised around this lazy river all day. (laughs) (laughs) And I talked to people, and I partied with the Harlem Globetrotters, and we had a Sesame Street event. And I was like, this is phenomenal. I love these people. Which venue were you at at that point? Was that Staples, or were you with Nederlander then? No, I was at the Pond, Honda Center. Oh, you're at the Pond. Okay. Just out of curiosity, is that something that they pushed you to go to the conference? Were they already sending people? Did you find your way to it? Yeah. My boss at the time, he said that the entire department went. So it was like Brian Gale, Carl Schlossman. And yeah, so it was like our whole team, we went. I didn't get to go the next year, but then the following year, Anaheim hosted it. And so I got to work with Tammy Kulbeck, 
And at that time, the venues were really responsible for the conference. So we helped get the sponsorship. We were stuffing bags. Like I have photos of just bags. And it was my really good friend, Holly Lewis, and I stuffing these bags. And we hired like 10 interns. Wow. (laughs) And we were doing registration, signage, everything. That's how I met Jim Delaney because I helped with local PR contacts. And so we did the PR sessions. Then I knew I was like, I need to go to this every year. I gained so much knowledge, so many great relationships. So then I started going regularly, really after Anaheim. And how did you get involved after that year at Anaheim with the planning and eventually move into the presidency of the conference? I don't know exactly. I know that Anaheim obviously were really involved with it. And I kept asking to be on the committee but I think I just always kind of volunteered to do a session or, or send out an idea or something like that. I don't even remember when I officially was on the committee. I worked under, I guess it would have been Suzanne. Suzanne Richardson. Suzanne was VP of Agenda. And I met her at the first conference in Phoenix. And so I kind of became her assistant, which led to actual board member role as Agenda, which led to president. Right. You brought me into EAMC once I attended and then had expressed interest in helping. You know, you, you brought me into my role and you've been around long enough now that I am president, but you're still helping me out in so many ways behind the scenes. And I'm so grateful for that because, Vanessa, I really believe that 100% in what you said, if there are folks listening who have not been and look to attend when we get back to in person conferences, There's so much I have learned over the years from those sessions. And having been involved in other industries, the amount of education and learning that happens at this conference is amazing, but really believe this, that that true value is from those relationships I've made so that when Marvel Universe Live was hosted in Kentucky, I went down and visited with Paul down there to preview the show as we get a look at it before we started marketing it. And those connections that you make from coast to coast with great people that you can pick up and you can say, hey, this artist is asking for this crazy thing backstage. How did you handle this? There's so much value there over the years. We're so grateful that you are our president and that you've gotten so involved as well as Paul. Like you guys are obviously with this podcast. I'm so excited that we're kind of moving us into the next iteration of EAMC, going digital with a lot of these different platforms. So I'm very, very proud of where it's going. And just to kind of piggyback on what you said, all of us were dealing with a lot of social injustices this year. And that was something I hadn't had to really dive into, sadly, as a publicist, you know, saying the right thing in the right tone and understanding it. And I was lucky enough that I have good friends with the AMC and we had just really frank, uncomfortable conversations. We sure did. To better understand it all. I'm just so grateful that I was able to call on people and have those conversations. It's a learning process. We've learned so much in this past year. We've all gotten out of our comfort zone. We've all learned a lot and we've all got a lot of learnings left to do. You know, there was a recent session that our diversity group put together and Paul B hosted and Vince was our guest. And he talked about how over the next 10 years, everything we know will continue to change and evolve and the rules will be rewritten and we have to readdress it. And so it's obviously been a big topic of this year. How has 2020 been for you? Obviously, we're staying busy and gosh, that helps keep us distracted. But with the wildfires and the elections and the pandemic, Vanessa, what are you doing to kind of get through this year? It has been a roller coaster, lots of ups and downs. I mean, when it all first started, I think we all could probably agree. At first, you know, we always are working nonstop. And so at first it was like a vacation. Granted, we were rescheduling shows and it was busy and everybody wanted to Zoom 24-7. But it also was like, I discovered House Party. 
that app and it was like, oh my gosh, this is fun. Let's have a happy hour at four o'clock. I'm home. Like, what are we doing? And at first it was really fun. And then reality hit when I found out that like my best friend and coworker of 20 years got furloughed. I've worked next to him this whole time. Emotionally, it's been draining for everybody because you feel guilty the strain on the people that got furloughed, you feel terrible talking about, I just had six shows, which sounds amazing and great, but it really, we have to keep the right tone of that. It's hard to have conversations with some of your best friends because they're out of work. So it's super, super sensitive. And then you're exhausted because you're working harder and longer and in different ways than you've ever worked. So I was pretty much an emotional wreck, I would say in April. So March, it was a party. April, I was an emotional wreck. (laughs) Then I got like a burst of creativity and I was like, okay, we're going to turn this around. And we started doing these digital shows and I was booking these local bands and we were doing cooking classes and we were like doing all this virtual programming. And I was just like, okay, we can do all of this. And then luckily the drive-ins came and now I guess we're all maybe getting used to this new normal in a way where we can go to dinner, socially distance with friends. I just, you know, we're such social people. It was really hard not seeing people. The only silver lining was I think it's taken us all a moment to slow down a bit Yeah, and have better interactions. You hit on how sad and dark it was. You know, any of us in this industry experience that same situation, not only personally, if you're going through your own furlough or layoff, but seeing just one after the other friends of yours who are working for promoters and other venues getting furloughed, getting laid off. And, you know, it didn't matter if they were there for a year. Some of them were working for 30 years. Some of them were people that you worked with at your current company. So it was this emotional ride and sort of a morning and everything. To circle back a little bit to EAMC, but also hitting on that is speaking personally, it was so valuable to have that connection to people that are in this industry, though. For instance, if I had not gone to EAMC, and I'll credit so much you and Suzanne, once I started going, I met you, I think, at my first one. I may have talked on a panel really quickly. Suzanne then drug me on to the planning committee in 2011. And then I sort of never turned back from there. But, you know, if I didn't have that, and then I got to the current point I was at, and then I get laid off. It's one of those things that I talk to my family, I talk to my friends, they're all very considerate and kind, but they have no idea what the industry looks like, you know, so none of them work in live entertainment, none of them have had the highs of being at a sold out concert to then crash down to the lows of being stuck at home and no events. It's been so critical to have those relationships across the industry. And it's not always happy times, but it's just great to have that connection with other people that are going through that same thing and being able to have those happy hours. And sometimes they're grim. You know, you're just like, where are we going? And where have we been? And what's it look like? But it's great to at least have that perspective with other people that are in the same boat. Definitely. So Vanessa, I recently had pop up in my timeline, you know, on Facebook, it always has that thing where it reminds you of past memories. And and this time of year is often when we're having our planning meetings and recently showed up in my timeline, a concert that you kindly invited us to out in LA when the planning out there 
we all went to the Greek and saw Gary Clark Jr. Gary Clark Jr., yeah. And I think that was 2014 because the conference was 2015, correct? Yes. Yeah, Tedeschi Trucks and Gary Clark Jr. Yes, that was the other band. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have the poster out in my hallway right here. It was such a great night and an amazing night at the Greek you know, we talked a lot about Niederlander. It was such a huge industry story at the time. Yeah. What do you guys call it? The Battle for the Greek? Yeah. Such a historic, amazing, unique venue. What was that like to live through that? Hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just a little background. So Niederlander Concerts booked, managed, operated the Greek theater for over 40 years. It's always been owned by the city of L.A. And the city of L.A. put it up for an RFP, which it had done in previous years and the parks and recreation initially awarded the contract to Live Nation. The Greek theater is set in a community. So there's a lot of houses and neighbors in that area that we had built this really strong relationship with. And they felt comfortable with us because we had put all these protocols in place with security and we called them the yellow jackets that would go door to door and help with cleaning up trash or if a person needed to get out of their driveway because the roads narrow to get up to the Greek theater. Right. They were not happy with this decision. Obviously, Niederlander was not happy with this decision. And then the city council had to ultimately vote to award the contract. So that's kind of when the fight began in Friendship Auditorium. <laughs> if you could have seen, it was truly a political race. I mean, it really got down to it. You would have the Greek theater team, the Niederlander team were in green t-shirts. I came up with the idea with We Are the Greek because I wanted it to be that it's not just about the brick and mortar. It's about the people at the Greek theater that had been there forever. It's about the community, the neighbors. It's like all of us, we are the Greek theater. So we had t-shirts and buttons and we would go canvassing the neighborhood with signs. Then Live Nation, who we were up against, they had red shirts and they were canvassing and it was a full political fight where it got onto the steps of City Hall and we would be doing these press conferences. And at the time we ended up aligning with AEG. So it was AEG and Niederlander and Live Nation. So on one side of the venue would be the green shirts. On the other side would be the red shirts. We would hold a press conference on the steps with community leaders and staff holding these signs and doing these impromptu press conferences. I was dealing with really personal events in my own life. My mother was diagnosed with cancer and she lived about an hour east of me, but in traffic, that would be two to three hour drive. Yeah. And I would be having to take conference calls in the car to go and take my mother to her appointments and stuff. My father has passed away. He passed away a while ago, but my one sister lives in Northern California. My other sister lives only like 10 minutes from my mom. But unfortunately, at that same time, her husband got diagnosed with cancer. Talk about good family karma. We have bad luck. My sister was dealing with her husband. So I was really kind of the caretaker for my mother. Yeah. If anybody gets anything out of this podcast, make sure you're an advocate for your own medical health because- I was fighting with insurance and calling doctors all the time. And it was a nonstop battle between dealing with getting the right power of attorney so that I could talk to the doctors directly, taking care of all my mother's finances and moving her out of her house and getting her the right care. That was emotionally a lot. And going to work was kind of a break from me. And then my best friend got diagnosed with cancer shortly after. So that whole entire time is a blur because 
I was working so hard to save the Greek and I was learning a lot because I had never dealt with so much. Um, politics, right? Yeah, politics, like the lawyers, like we would end up after a meeting at Friendship Auditorium, I would walk outside, I'd have statements prepared that I had to vet with our lawyers and the LA Times and all the news crews were right there waiting for me. And I'm trying to type up these statements that are approved by our lawyers and our team to give to them. There'd be times where you would hear Live Nation just called into the news talk station. And like everybody would be coming into my office and being like, we need to get on the news and get our point across. So I would be trying to get in touch with the news station. Okay, Live Nation just spoke. Well, here's Nederlander's statement. And it was just nonstop. And then I would get in the car, drive two hours and take my mom and spend five hours at her chemo treatments. And then on the weekends, I would try to see my best friend. It was a really, really, really hard time. And you were also, let's not forget, you know, not only president of EAMC during that time, but you were also hosting, yeah. which you advised me never to do. Yes, never <laughs> be president and host at the same time. It's terrible. And I will say for anybody who has lost someone that they love, parents and friends and stuff, I lost, it was four years in July that my mom passed away. It'll be four years, November 10th, that my best friend passed away. Cancer's terrible. It changes you. It definitely makes you, you feel, all of us feel like this sense of maybe guilt or, or pride or something that we have to work all these shows, that we have to be at all these events. And if anybody can just take that away and just know what's important. Like I wish that, I think that working so much on Saving the Greek was my outlet, my break from the depression of being in a hospital and seeing someone so vulnerable and dying. I wish I just would have taken more time. Yeah, it had to be just a lot to go through at that time. And so if now today, you know, obviously we're going through a lot again, right? Yeah. In a very different, yeah. in a very, in a very different kind of way. But it sounds like you have learned to be an advocate for yourself and, you know, find that way to, hey, I know we're dealing with this, but I've also got to deal with this. Or again, when you took that position with Needlander of, okay, I will come back, but I can't advocate for myself to do that. I think a lot of us are afraid yeah. to do that because we're afraid we're going to, you know, be passed over for that job. So I think your strength there and advocating for yourself is something that we can all aspire to. Thank you. I think as a woman in this business, we also don't, in a weird way, we feel like we don't deserve. We don't deserve to ask for that raise or ask for that money or ask for that position. And I think when you look at how hard you work and the experience that you have, you do deserve it. You've put in the time, you've put in the hours. You are a leader in your business. And so you need to advocate for yourself. And I tend to push everything down and say, it's fine and it's great and I can deal with it all. But after losing, going through that tough time, ultimately the Greek theater is now managed by SMG and Nederlander does still promote there, but so does Live Nation, so does AEG. We're all friends again at Friendship Auditorium. <laughs> so we all are working together. You know, you, that's the funny thing is you could be fighting and hating the person next to you. And then the next week you're all working together on a show. And so I tend to push everything down and kind of just like keep it going. And after that time, it kind of hit me after, you know, you just kind of just going through the motions. You're like, okay, I'm working on this and I'm putting it together a press conference. I'm going to chemo. I'm going to go spend time with my best friend's little girl. So you're just kind of going through the motion. It hit me afterwards. So I decided to run a marathon and that helped. 
<laughs> like literally run a marathon. Yeah, I ran it. You had figured until you run the marathon of life and now you decide you're literally going to run a marathon? Yeah, I hate running. It wasn't easy, but uh, <laughs> I had to just refocus and I had to do it for my best friend because she was like, when I get through this, we're going to run the Long Beach Marathon together. I'm all, yes, we are. So I was doing it for her, but I was also doing it in a weird way. It was a way for me to clear my mind. I was focused on, okay, at 6 a.m. every Saturday, I got to meet this run group and run for four miles and then run for five miles. And sometimes I would just be crying running these laps. I was going to say it had to be so emotional. Yeah, it was just clearing my head and just being by myself for hours on end. I don't necessarily recommend anybody run a marathon unless you're really into it. But <laughs> There's not a second one coming? <laughs> There's no second marathon? No. I'm glad I did it. It's what I needed to do to get my head straight, I guess. Yeah. You know, my best friend recently passed away from leukemia uh, within the past year. And and I went the opposite direction. I decided to eat my way through it. So that was... <laughs> <laughs> and I do recommend that. I do recommend eating to kill the pain. There was definitely eating and drinking evolved with all of it, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Dave, we're all kind of going through stuff now. And of course, it's personally not anything on that same level of what you went through. I think we all kind of hope that this small silver lining for our industry and for people that work in it is it does give us some new perspective. Yeah. Speaking for me personally, it definitely has. And I was kind of the same mindset of run and gun all the time. I'm going to be there early morning. I'm going to be there late at night. I'm working every single event. I love my job or I tell myself I love my job, yeah. <laughs> you know, especially in the hard times, right? I didn't feel like I was sacrificing a lot, but I was so focused on that next thing that I didn't have time to really sit in anything. So I think it was a big shock having to just be home by yourself mm -hmm. through all this pandemic. I'm sure it's giving everyone in live entertainment a lot of perspective, but maybe that's a good thing that comes out of it is people are able to appreciate time away from work as much as they do the time at work. Right, yes. And balance that a bit better because I think we were all notoriously horrible at doing that. You know, so many, so many people in our industry Amen. always were like, you know, there's a reason I'm single yeah. or this or that, you know, it's because you're married to your job, you're married to your work. And while you may love it, you sacrifice so much for it. Hopefully we're able to balance it a little bit better once we inevitably recover at some point. It's such a good point. I wish there was a study done on like personalities, like people that are attracted to this business. Cause we're really addicts in some capacity. Agreed. We're like workaholics. Yes. It's a weird group of people. I mean, I love this group of people. You are my people, but there's probably something wrong with us. <laughs> <laughs> we're chasing that high. We're chasing that live event high, right? I mean, you know, we're yeah. always chasing that. Vanessa, what do you see as the future? When you look ahead, you know, in two years down the road, what do you kind of see is next for this industry? I definitely think, you know, a lot of things are going to the live streaming way of life. And I think that that's going to continue. I don't see why that wouldn't. I think the drive-ins are going to continue. My hope, God, I pray that we are back by spring. I think some states will open sooner than others, probably different regulations. I think that we're all going to have different rules and regulations. You know, we've gone through it. We've gone through like training for active shooters and for terrorist attacks. And now it's COVID, this invisible disease. And so there's going to be all these different things that we've learned. And it always makes us better, makes us more aware. It makes us more aware too of like what people are comfortable with too, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I really hope that we're back to work. And I hope, like Paul said, I hope that we all take a little more time for ourselves and appreciate that work-life balance. It's okay to not work every show. It's okay to say no, because, you know, you get like, I don't know if you guys do, I'm sure you do, but 
when you work shows, you'd always have like the production people that work 15 hours a day. And they're like, oh, nice of you to show up at four o'clock to check in the media. And I'm like, yeah, but I also worked all week on conference calls and meetings all week. So don't make me feel guilty. I hate that. That's one of the things I hate the most is the guilt. We do get that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I worked so much harder than you. Okay. It's not a competition. Uh, And our work never ends. I took like a weekend off, a weekend. How sad is that? But we've been working, you know, you feel this like responsibility because it's such a short staff and, you know, where we were launching these drive-ins. And so I took a weekend off in September after we had already launched most of the drive-ins and people are like, oh my God, you're not going to be at these shows. Nope. Taking the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll survive. It will be all fine. We'll be there on Monday. Well, Vanessa, you've come a long way from that girl in the 80s going to that George Michael show. So has she though? Has she? <laughs> has she though? <laughs> <laughs> In some ways, we're right back where we started. Let's not forget that either. All right, we're going to wrap things up here with our fast five, okay. five rapid fire questions. I'm ready. Just going to shoot these off to you and just looking for your immediate response. Don't think too deep about these. Okay. All right, the first band you ever loved. Band or person? Either way. I'm going to say Michael Jackson. Favorite concert you've ever seen? Michael Buble. <laughs> Michael theme. How about the nicest artist or celebrity that you've met? Ooh, I'm swayed right now because I just met Ryan Cascade. (laughs) So generous and so sweet. And so was Andrew McMahon, who we just worked with. So I'm a little bit swayed because I just remember who I just worked with. I guess I'm going to have to say those two, just because I just worked with them and they were lovely. How about your favorite city to go to on vacation or favorite place to go to on vacation? Laguna Beach. And last question, what is your theme song? So you get your own TV show, Keep It Up With The Cromers. What is the song that plays, the opening song to the show that kind of sums up Vanessa? Ooh, that's a good one. It, funny enough, the song that keeps coming into my head, which I don't know if this is really true, but I'm just going to say it, is I Want to Dance With Somebody by Whitney Houston. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can see that. Totally. That works on so many levels. <laughs> yeah. It just gets me going. I love it. And so I'm going to have to go with that. I love Whitney and uh, I love that song. Vanessa, if somebody wants to reach out to you after hearing you talk today or follow you on social, what's the best ways for them to get in touch with you? You can find me on all the social platforms on Twitter. I think it's just my name and Instagram is Funky V. Facebook is my name and LinkedIn, of course. All the good stuff. Well, we appreciate you joining us today. Thank you guys. Sharing your adventures. Look forward to many more adventures in the years to come for sure. Yes, thank you. You guys are awesome hosts. I've had so much fun. I'm so excited about this. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's great because we're learning so much. People that we know for years and years, but we're learning new things about them all the time. So that's been great. I bet. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you. I want to thank everybody for listening to Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'd love your five-star reviews so you can help others find us. And until the next adventure, I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone.